welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. We are continuing on our our series um, from the book of Revelation. It's a strange time of year. I know many will just be feeling the gloom of the weather and winter, so I, I hope and trust that God's Spirit will help us as we, as we listen and as He encourages us and nourishes us by His Word. Um, we're still in the easy bit of Revelation, just to go easy on us all. We're finding our way uh, with this uh, learning how to read it, and um, we're in the particular section where um, St. John um, addresses the, the specific churches with a uh, prophetic message. Before we jump off in the deep end in chapter four and onwards, and we get into the epic that is Revelation. Um, so, at the very least, what we can offer is, if you've picked up something over the last month, um, you'll be able to at least read the book of Revelation at the start <laughs> and, and get to grips with it. Um, so, I want to just offer some general comments about church that come up before we dive right into the particular section here in chapter two. Um, it's, it's good just to take some of the moment as we listen to this section that really addresses um, the church um, really quite clearly at large. It's very easy to uh, project idealized views of what church should be. Uh, and that can often very much lead to problems. You know, we, ha- we can have an ideal- idealized view that church is meant to be this always perfect, really warm, loving community who always just love and support one another. And then when that doesn't work out in a particular situation, we just, that's the reason we leave or we just abscond or, or walk away from it because it's not lived up to all um, that we thought it might be. Of course, there could be legitimate need in that. But Revelation resists the temptation to idealize church. I wonder if you've seen that already in the text that we've heard read last week and this week. It speaks of churches under particular circumstances. The churches are addressed by their name, their, their geographical location. And that in and of itself just places them in a limited and very particular context. By doing so, I mean, ideally, Adelaide Place, we would, you know, be in a context where the parking was better, more, more cheaper and better public transport. And, you know, the weather would be slightly better on Sundays and particularly maybe a Sunday where you want to lift people and, uh, to vision and stuff. But it's pouring down, it's cold, the roof's leaking. You know, we exist under particular circumstances. Sometimes we wish it wasn't so. And as one writer said about this whole section on the different seven different churches, It's meant to be understood and read like church as a messy family room rather than the sort of the showroom or the showhouse room that just looked all perfect and and set out for people to come and say, oh, isn't this a wonderful place? It's much more like the messy family home. There's a a phrase uh, that the reformers uh, used quite often. Uh, They they talk about the church always reforming. 
And it was this sort of capturing this, the normalcy, the normal rhythm of, we shouldn't be surprised when we read texts in the Bible like we have just read where there's sometimes a corrective element, a, a, a word of challenge and a word of, of caution. In some senses, as we go through these bits on the particular churches, we should, yeah, this is normal. This is normal, a, a, a work where the church is always reforming and always coming in under some degree of correction. It's also worthwhile just making a general comment while we're here in a section that really highlights that this group of people, this particular group of people, uh, the church, is to say that church is part of God's plan. It always has been a part of God's plan to call a people, and it's, it's a key part of God's plan in, in terms of his, his way of, of revealing himself to the world. I've watched some people expend so much energy railing against church. It's like they've almost made a career out of railing against church. Now, sometimes that's legitimate, right? Sometimes, particularly when we think of institutional sins and systemic issues, right? of course, that needs challenge. We need to not hold back on that in the slightest. And I'm not defending one particular view of church. But we can get to the place of our idealized view where we are continually maybe railing against uh, church and spend a lot of energy from that. But the church, warts and all, and idiosyncrasies is a part of God's plan, a part of the, what he wants, way he wants to reveal himself. And again, we find in this text, this church in Smyrna, the church um, gets its significance, its identity every, from Jesus. Every church in the seven churches starts with a line that it's from, it's very clearly that they are from and held by Jesus. And here the line is that the church gets its significance from these words, that Jesus the first and last who died and came back to life. Now this is an interesting because there could be a detail in that about Smyrna in particular, because as a, a city, they were a city that was once dead and came back to life in 580 BC. Um, it's completely destro- destroyed and then rebuilt in 290 BC. So they were, they were quite proud of that. They were a place that was resurrected. And so there might be a play in that here as, the, as the, St. John the writer um, points to that aspect of the one who died and came back to life. But let's just remind ourselves of of the scene at large uh, in the book of Revelation. St. John was likely a political prisoner, the writer St. John, a political prisoner on the island of Patmos. And it was there that he received a vision of the resurrected Jesus as this transcendent, this glorious son of man um, figure with all the layers that we've explored. And he is relaying this on to the church and he is describing passing on in the prophetic tradition specific words to specific churches, the seven churches in that area. And this is where we find ourselves. And just a a note, and I might sound like a a, a mad Northern Irishman for a second, but this all happened on the Lord's Day. And I think that's something significant. There is a reason why we meet on a Sunday, just to remind ourselves that. It's not just because. The reason we meet on a Sunday is because on the Sunday, the Lord was raised from the dead. It's the resurrection day. It's the day we remind ourselves that we reorder ourselves to the new initiative God was doing in in his resurrection of his son. And it's always been an important um, practice for the church. So I find that 
exciting that here we have on the Lord's Day this new initiative being launched and reminded, that's the Northern Irish bit in me over, we do like our Sabbath and our Sundays there. This week we're going to reflect upon faith under crushing pressure. And the, the text introduces us to a church not just under pressure, but under ellipsis is the, the Greek word for affliction. It's a strong word, and it has this sense of, of bearing a weight, of a heavy, heavy stone that's just crushing us and crushing us into the ground, hence the crushing pressure. And I should warn you that there is a strong possibility that the suffering of Smyrna could seem awfully far removed from our current experience of church in the West. And if this is so, then, okay, great. What do we do with that? What can we learn from that if that becomes, uh, if that is a reality? But first of all, I want to just take a bit of time to just try and get into the world uh, to the particular suffering of this place, this church in Smyrna. And of course, if we made up a grid of the, the seven churches of this sort of threefold pattern that becomes familiar where there's churches, they receive this word of commendation, a word of correction, a word of promise, we quickly re- realize that this church has no words of correction, uh, only words of commendation and words of promise, which is really interesting. So what can we learn about this place, uh, Smyrna, first of all, the place, in order to try and grapple with their particular circumstances before uh, rushing to think about our own. Um, so, okay, so Smyrna, there might be a picture, that, uh, a computer-generated picture of ancient Smyrna. So, first of all, this place was, was a very pro-Rome place. They had this phrase that they would have known, Rome is first in all things. And even before Rome was a superpower, they had a, a statue to the goddess of Roma. And so they were, they were all about Rome. They loved Rome. They loved what it stood for. They loved the vibes. They loved what it, it was able to do. And they were so very pro-Rome. And we talked about um, Ephesus last week. And in some ways, the city of Smyrna was a rival in that area. They wanted to be first. Everyone would be in a significant place at that time. And Smyrna was like that. It was almost a rival with how amazing it was in comparison to Ephesus. Some uh, phrases, again, that are associated with uh, Smyrna were the, the crown of Asia or the flower of Asia. And one commentary I even picked up, apparently they had very nice wine and it's a lovely place to be. Just to put that in our middle of our miserable winter. So modern day place, you'd need to place it in, in a, the part of Turkey, which is, you may be familiar with, is Izmir, if I've pronounced that correctly, if I've not, forgive me. So a, a beautiful place with a beautiful uh, uh, sea and everything sunny and warm and very, very loving the Roman vibes and loving what Rome was doing for them at the time. It was the birthplace of some great authors um, like Homer, um, the one who writes Greek mythology and, and poetry, and uh, not the other one. And it's home as well of a famous early Christian martyr, the Bishop of Smyrna called Polycarp. So it had a place where significant people came from. 
It had a, 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 a energy, a richness, a vibe, and a, and a fascination and admiration of all things Rome. And the Christians here were suffering for being faithfully present to the kingdom of God. The emperor worship was a thing in their day. The emperors, remember thinking about how much they loved Rome. Emperors, they weren't just like leaders of countries that we think of, particularly in Western context, we think of a powerful leader. Um, there was a thing called emperor worship where the emperors would sort of have quasi-divine titles like Lord of all or Son of God. And Domitian, one of the emperors who was possibly in place at the time of the writing of Revelation, he, one of uh, two of his favorite uh, titles for himself were, some people worry about mine as lead pastor, we've got he, Lord of the Earth and, and Lord and God. If you could just refer to me as that, please. And so there's a sense here that there was something that we sometimes miss when we say Jesus is Lord, we realize how subversive and dangerous that was because there was such a claim from the emperors that they saw themselves and some were deified. They thought they are like gods. They were up here and became like gods in their mind. And in Smyrna, they weren't going to pay homage to that. They weren't going to bow down to that because they knew Jesus was Lord, not the emperor. So they were under pressure, crushing pressure from this mighty regime that could just take them out on a whim and, and, and did and would. But they were also under pressure from opposition in the area from the Jews in Smyrna. And we have this sort of phrase of the, the being accused as a synagogue of Satan. And it one possible, and it's only a possible explanation, it's one of those ones where you read and read and read and read and read and then they say, unfortunately, we don't really know. And then you're like, well, why did I just spend so long reading? But anyway, one of the possible explanations of the synagogue of Satan was the Jews had struck up a, 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 a relationship where they could get a pass on certain things that they would have to do towards emperor worship. They had a respect that they knew that, that they believed in one God and so couldn't. And so they, they had a, a particular dispensation and allowance for that. And so when you had this sect called Christianity coming along, um, messing with that and also trying to do, get that privilege, there were people going, oh no, that's going to backfire on us and our freedom and our privilege. And so there, there was enmity between them because they're like, actually, we need to be careful how we live in this environment. That could be one thing of why they were wanting to get resistance to this early movement of uh, Christians known as people of the way. It might just be as well that they didn't like the direction they were taking Judaism. It, it was coming, this idea of this is the Messiah. But we don't really know. But what we do know is that the text in its final form tells us that there was opposition coming at them from the Jewish people in the area and not just from the Roman powers. As well as that, we find another area, which is just that of poverty. Uh, in a natural sense, they found themselves just quite vulnerable in a, in a hierarchical society where it was who you know and, and money was a way to, uh, to get places and, and, and give you power. They, they just didn't have that, and they were therefore um, very vulnerable. They weren't a church of great means, and yet they received this sort of affirmation of like, no, you are rich, you're, you're very rich in all the right things. So th this crushing pressure was coming down on them in at least 
these three directions, maybe even more when you get to the details. The, the pressure to worship and to pay homage to the idols of Rome was one. The second was with something was going on with the relationship with the Jewish community that was not uh, sitting well with them. And then third, the pressure just of their material situation that they, they weren't a people of means and they, had, they were in that sense powerless uh, in their culture. So let's just in some ways, allow that to settle and sit alongside um, our experiences today for a few moments. Personally, I, 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 I struggle with identifying with parts of the Smyrna story. It makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. It makes me think of things that I'm, I'm not sure I really want to look at or to take, uh, or really, maybe don't even feel able to embrace some of the, the discomfort that um, the Smyrna Christians had to face into. So I don't think we're talking about suffering our way through a particularly dry or long sermon or suffering our way through a style of worship that may be to our liking or not. So one of the ways as a Christian minister that I sometimes suffer in this culture, I've told you this before, but I really mean it, is that awkward social situation when people ask me what I do. And, uh, and a number of times I, 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 I've had this back to me and when I explain, yeah, I, I'm a minister, and this response comes, and what's, what's, why I suffer in it is because they're sincere in their response. And, they, and they, after they look kind of embarrassed, a number of people say, is that a full-time job? And I'm like, no, no, just, just, just one day a week, you know, not even one half a day on a Sunday is all it really is. And, uh, but, you know, this sort of suffering we talk about in Smyrna, this lipsis, remember this affliction, this weight that is just pushing us down into the ground, crushing pressure, is, is a lot more than sometimes the suffering we experience. Again, trying to wrestle Smyrna and bring it into the world of, well, Glasgow and our context. Many people will talk about our context here in the, in the post, as being a post-Christian culture. Now, I'm sure there's really technical explanations of what we mean by that. The, the idea that the Christian worldview and the Christian beliefs and values used to be the norm, used to be the, the plausibility structure, the easy thing to believe. Christians used to have a place in, at the seat at the table of power in this country, and that we were one of the first people to ask. You had a church in every corner, the pillar of society, and, we, and there was a sense of gravitas. The church has had enormous power in, in its relationship with the state. And of course, in a post-Christian society, it's not that that just isn't there, but we've grown beyond it. That we're like the relics of, uh, when you think of a, a red phone box, you're like a, a curious thing from the past, but not something to be taken seriously in the present. And so in a post-Christian, it's hard ground for the gospel to take root. It, it's, you might point to, point to some of the secular world we live in, and that, in a sense, there is a pressure that that brings. But does it really present itself like the crushing pressure of Smyrna day to day? Maybe it does, maybe it should, maybe it will, or maybe we're just talking about a degree of, uh, of pressure that there's a, somewhere there's a spectrum there, I'm not sure. Because, of course, if we're talking about a degree, then there's crushing pressure to, to compromise 
then I'm sure many of us can, at times can think, absolutely, I feel a pressure just to conform and just to, to live in a particular way. And of course, school or um, workplace is a classic place where you might feel a pressure to conform, a pressure to, to just go to the, the culture of the, of the place you work. And so would I, I, I wrestle with the sense of when we come to our culture today, to quickly go to the Smyrna thing, oh, we know exactly what it's like. Do we really? Do we really know what it's like to have this crushing pressure? And I also want to say right here, I, I know many of you have experienced or are experiencing your own unfair dose of cruel or crushing afflictions. Many of you will know what it's like to be tempted beyond what you can take or, or just have experienced sadness and loss to the point where you could just give up. These are, are valid moments in Christian theology and in the Christian life that are worthy of compassion and space. And we honor those when we try and take care of ourselves through those dark, dark moments. And we also recognize the particular nature of a church like Smyrna under crushing pressure of a slightly different nature. The resolutions can, can still be the same bam for our own afflictions, but for, for, for various types of suffering, but we also have to keep a category clear that they were under crushing pressure because of their allegiance, because of their faithfulness, because of their 100% commitment to the way they were doing discipleship and commitment to Jesus, that was causing them great affliction and causing, giving them great pressure. The church in Ukraine comes to mind because of the potential cost they may make in, have to make in the days that are ahead. Though one could also point to places like Iraq, Iran, Egypt, China, where people have had to face all sorts of crushing pressures because of the things uh, and their allegiance to Jesus. On the Ukraine front, I seen a post, we mentioned Josh, he, he had linked a post on Facebook which spoke to a, a Ukraine church where they're like, uh, we're not going. And it wasn't like a national pride, it was like a commitment to their mission and to their neighbor and like, whatever happens, we're not going. And there's just that category that we need to, to stay open to. Can you imagine on the, on the Ukraine front, if you're a church reading the text that we have been reading from the book of Revelation, how you would hear that, maybe hear it differently. As we're reading about empire, cosmic forces, 666-style um, leaders who want to rise up and possess and dispossess, I don't think it'd be hard for you if you're reading Revelation responsibly to conclude that this story that we're hearing in Revelation is the story of the world. That not just the Egyptian regime, Assyrian regime, the Babylonian or Rome, this world that we see with our very own eyes has something going on that is cyclical unless the vicious cycle can be broken. People rising up. So in bridging worlds, as we think about our context today, we need to be open. We need to be open to our blind spots. 
Are we blind to this type of suffering church that often comes from faithfulness to Jesus? Are we missing something in our discipleship and therefore getting no resistance from culture at all? We sing of the cost, but where is the cost to be found outside of our liturgy? But if a church is under this lips, this crushing pressure, what what do they do? Because in this text, there is grace in the form of an invitation for them to open their eyes to God under this crushing pressure. And first of all, there's, there's two repetitive phrases worth meditating on. I know and, and do not be afraid. First of all, I, I know, he says, I know your afflictions. I know the crushing pressure you're under and your poverty, yet you're rich. He's going to show them a lot more in the book of Revelation, but he begins with these words, which can be heard as a comfort to hear that I know, that God knows. And your mind could reflect on all of that means personally or, or what that sort of language means in, in the Bible. The, the, the knowing is a signal to the people. Think of, of Exodus' story when God says, I heard your cry. Think of Hagar where she names, in this sort of uh, pluralistic culture, they didn't know exactly who God was and Hagar just names him as El Roy, God who sees me. Think of the Psalms and, and the way they talk about the intimacy of this God, whoever he is, he knows me. And the knowing is a signal, not just, yes, it brings a deep comfort in and of itself, the pathos and the empathy of a God in Christ who knows suffering and weakness is profound. But it is also in scriptures, no resigned I know from somebody who is unable to help, but it is the beginning of a God who is saying, I am acting, I have acted. Here, people of Smyrna, I know and I am on the move. And, I, and, and this, this is something that needs to, to sit with us when we, when we hear these words, I know. And the second phrase that quickly follows is, uh, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Now, I like the first part. I'm not so sure about the second part of that sentence. It feels a bit like going to the dentist where it's like, you know, this, this needle might hurt if it hits a nerve. And you're like, oh my goodness, uh, what is coming? You just brace yourself. But it's these words of, of, of God calming, do not be afraid, I am in control. And he says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. The devil, it's like, how did he get into that story? He just kind of pops up, the, the devil. And again, if you remember the slide last week, where John is trying to open our mind to saying there's more than going on, this battle that we are in, there's the this world of the, the flesh, the devil, uh, the flesh being our own desires, the devil and the world of lies and this world of, of accusation and lies and how it gets into the system of the world. And th- these things are always going on. There's always more going on than we think. And, and without, uh, with all the ambiguity that that little sentence leaves us with, particularly in the West, it says, have your eyes of faith wide open to what's going on. When Jesus says to the disciples, watch him pray, watch him pray. There's more going on than just sometimes what we see with our eyes. This is what John's doing. And the word uh, for Smyrna called for a response that might seem unusual compared to some of the ways we can think of 
pastoral care. Sometimes we're rightly led to cry out in lament, the great expression of pain with no resolution, just pouring our hearts out. Sometimes we rally against injustice, we speak in truth to power. Sometimes it's right, and often we do this in our, 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 our good heart, it's like, right, let's fix this. <laughs> let's try and find solutions, let's get around that, let's care, let's, let's, let's figure out some solutions to this. But here they are told, right, let's face this. Let's face this. Implied is you're going to need all the courage you can muster up, knowing that Christ knows, knowing that he's in control. But it's a simple choice in Smyrna. There's no seemingly third way. Be faithful even unto death is their response that is put to them. And of course, why won't Jesus or why can't Jesus lift this crushing pressure off them? Well, it's because it's coming about because of their faithfulness to Jesus. What is the accommodate to Rome and, and the power and the might and just give in and just live a way that pleases the emperor? That's not an option. Follow that dominant culture. Or else stay faithful to Jesus. Faith under crushing pressure. Now, what is said here in this section, remember, it in St. John is introducing us to themes that we picked up um, later on in the book of Revelation. And in some ways here, the resolution offered um, at the end of each of the church's message is offered in shorthand through this prophetic message where they point to a final victory. Uh, later in Revelation, when John lifts their eyes even further uh, through these circumstances to this cosmic battle, could point to Revelation 21 where we find these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, beautiful, as a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And so they are, they are given this call to, to take courage, to be faithful, even to wherever that would go. And I guess trust is the critical thing here because it's not a call to a stoic, joyless existence to exercise faith under, uh, under pressure, but it's a vision and a joy set before them of a worthwhile journey that gets expanded in full color later on in Revelation where we've just read. And it's an invitation to gaze, not at the circumstances they are see seeing with their eyes, but to gaze and lift their gaze to Jesus to what he is doing, who he is, and what he will one day fully and finally do. And it's an expansion of their knowledge of God. It's not a minimizing of the experiences, of the realities, or, or invalidating, or saying it's not really a big deal. No, 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 it's saying these things are a big deal, but what we need you to do is lift your eyes to, and expand your vision to Jesus and who he is and what he will do one day fully even as it passes through the darkest valleys of death. 
He said, let's be faithful. Feels like that mountain climb moment where we know at the top it's worth it. Well, sometimes, maybe not sure it feels like it's going to be worth it, but the New Testament is flooded with glimpses of experiences, of realities, of that future breaking in. It's not a, don't you worry, this, you, this poverty and injustice one day will be taken care of and just put up with it. No, no, this kingdom is breaking in. There's plenty of glimpses to say this, this, is, this hope is real and tangible. This is what the future will look like. But there's also that sense of just one day, one day. So it takes courage. And therefore, that, I think, becomes the invitation to us to open our eyes to God whenever we are under crushing pressure. So how, how might we embrace the word to Smyrna today? Bridge into our context, it's worth, first of all, identifying that in, in dark times, we, we do get a very different perspective on life, don't we? It, it just... It, it, it makes us see things differently. Some might make the argument that the church does better through persecution in dark times than it does whenever we're, we're on top of the world and, and quite happy. I don't know what you think about that, but you could point definitely make a, a strong case for that in church history. Of the, the church seems to do pretty well whenever they're in that difficult place. I was thinking about it from my vain world of running. Um, I, I picked up running as a hobby in uh, the first lockdown, something like that. And honestly, for the first year, I wonder what people, why people talk about running being hard. I thought it was easy. My times were flying down. I was getting PBs every week. I've been running for literally a year and a half, absolutely buzzing. Claire will be rolling her eyes right now. She's like, he's just, you know, full of humble brags. And, and then I got injured. And I was like, ah, it's like so annoying. And then I got injured, and then I got another injury, and then I turned 40 and I had a midlife crisis. And, st- and it, it, everything just started to get harder. And suddenly I was just like, uh, all those voices that were like, aye, you'll see. And you know, the, sort of the bravado of like, this is easy, what's so hard about this? And getting back at it, suddenly, ah, uh, there's, a, there's a certain humility and perspective that comes when you're injured when you're hurting, when you're not in control and you can't fix it. And this is the invitation we have here. In Matthew 13, 21, the parable of the sower, um, if you're familiar with it, it uses that word lipsis. In the rocky ground one, you know, when afflictions come your way, some people, I'm out. (laughs) He, he warns his disciples, some of you, that will happen. There's going to be moments comes and you're just going to bail because it's, it's, it's too much crushing pressure. So what about embracing rather than pushing away this word this morning? I think we start with the two phrases um, and bringing in our own pain into this situation too. And first, six things. One, spend time with the one who says, I know, and do not be afraid. We exist in a culture which provides plenty of things to worry about. If you're prone to worry, and if you enjoy it, good luck, or you'll be fine, because there's plenty of things to worry about, and, and there's plenty of avenues for those worries to sneak in. It, you know, worry is just the dominant culture. 
Spending time with the one who says, I know, I know the situation. And don't fear, I'm in control. And it's about hearing the depth of that from somebody who can actually relate to us in their pain, somebody who gets it. Second way I think we embrace it rather than pushing the Smyrna message away is we recognize the importance of prayer. Prayer for the battle. There's more going on than we see, and actually, we don't just fight this in our own strength. Third, we remember those who suffer for their allegiance to Jesus. Easy just to get tunnel vision in church, both thinking, be mindful of those locally and difficultly, but also globally. We remember those who suffer for their allegiance to Jesus. Fourthly, we embrace weakness and see it as something that strengthens our witness, not diminishes it. I think if we had a watching world punter outside, so we could bring a punter from outside, the church is much more believable in its weakness than it is trying to portray its strength. That's my conviction. For, through the testimony of scriptures, through my own experience, that when we embrace weakness, it actually becomes strangely something much more appealing to people like, Do you know, I, I actually might be interested in that. Fifthly, we identify and get among suffering caused by inequality today. It's very easy for us to sermonize and talk about things, talk about inequalities, and talk about that, those sorts of crushing pressures that go on. But that's not what we're called to do. So we're not called to talk about it. We're called to identify and get among it as best we can with all the limits of our own circumstances and humanity. But sixthly, and here's where there has to be something of an age where we have to take courage and reject Christianity light. Reject a mode of discipleship which goes no discipleship therefore without a cross, without a cost. But also we reject the discipleship void of any joy of the kingdom of heaven breaking in and showing the victory that God has won with all the glimpses that he will give of God's future breaking in now. Smyrna will be wise and life-giving words that disciples of Jesus sometimes need to hear, but often don't want to hear. When God says, I know, we can be sure that in Christ he means he has acted and will put things right. Take courage, hold on, and let's face into 100% committed discipleship with all the ways we will feel him at different moments. Trust him. Trust him with the ones you love most. Trust him because he knows the beginning from the end. Let's pray together. Let's just wait in the presence of God together. As we do that, just invite God's spirit to speak to your own heart.
inquire of what he wants you to hold on as we hear the words, let's hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. might find it helpful in the silence to name your fears. Give us vision, Jesus, we pray. Lift our eyes to you. Wipe our tears and give us courage to be faithful to you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.